The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. I'm glad everyone is so social this morning. We're glad to have you. I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning, which is from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 6, 12. If you're going to be following along in our Pewback Bible, that starts on page, page 520. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these home with you as a gift from Park Church. So again, we're Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 6, 12, page 520. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watching, is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is the gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with income with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil— This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen the sun, or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. 
even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of his eyes than the wandering of his appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, while he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm going to pray for us um, here in a moment. Uh, Before we do, when I pray, I also want to pray about what I think is on so many people's hearts and minds and ought to be as you're just paying attention to realities in this world. Uh, The war in Gaza between uh, Hamas and uh, and Israel has been devastating. Uh, The attack of Hamas on Israel, the retaliation from Israel into Palestine and into Gaza has brought so much damage and pain to so many people. And it is a very complex issue, and I don't have the time or the space to talk about some of the kind of theological complexities that some Christians wrestle with, or or some of the geopolitical complexities that people are trying to navigate. But human beings are suffering, and I think that grieves the heart of God. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, it's one of the things the Lord hates, is the shedding of innocent blood. And there are innocent Israeli children and people who have suffered and died. There are innocent Palestinian people and children who have died. There are innocent people in Russia and in Ukraine and in that conflict. There's suffering and there's pain and it grieves the heart of God and it ought to grieve and break our heart. It ought to grieve and break our heart. And so for today, what I want to do, even while there are conversations to be had in the midst of the growing kind of dynamic that's happening socially as people are trying to figure out, you know, whose side are you on? We ought to our hearts ought to just break, break. Uh, Human beings created in the image of God are suffering unspeakable atrocities, many of which you've seen on your news feeds and videos. It's devastating. And so I want to take a minute and pray that God would pour out his spirit um, to bring peace. And that ultimately that peace will come as people turn to Jesus to trust in him, in his love, and his grace, and as he begins to heal the world of this ongoing animosity and the divisions and the attempt to use force and power to, to enact and advance our own competing desires that has brought so much pain and devastation in the world. So I want to pray that Jesus would bring peace and bring comfort to those grieving and that in the midst of these atrocities, uh, people would find him, Jesus, the God of comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And so would you pray with me that God would pour out his spirit. Um, Jesus, we right now um, come before you with so many um, Christians around the world, but also just human beings that are crying out right now, crying out, that are facing devastating realities, whether in their own life and in their own family, the amount of families in Gaza and in Israel that are suffering, that are grieving, that are stunned and shocked, that are experiencing a kind of trauma that is almost impossible for us to even fathom. God, would you pour out your spirit? Would you draw near? Would you have mercy? Lord, have mercy. 
Christ, would you have mercy? Would you bring healing and peace? Would you, even in these dark moments, bring people's attention to you as a God who's moved into this world to bring, to bring healing and grace that Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. Would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Would your kingdom come in Gaza as it is in heaven? Would your kingdom come in Israel as it is in heaven? Would your spirit work in powerful ways? Would you help us as we lament and grieve to know how we ought to act and behave? But we, we come right now just grieving and devastating. We're crying out, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on these families, these people created in your image. Would you end the fighting, end the strife, end the warring, end the violence? Even today, would there be some sort of like miraculous breakthrough of some ceasefire that ends the devastation and begins a path, a path forward, whatever that is? And so would you pour out your spirit? As we think today as a community about the dark realities in this world and even in our own lives, even in our interior lives and all around us, would you help us to find increasing hope in you as God who has looked on this world with all of its grievous evil and you've moved towards the world with compassion and with redeeming love and with the ability to transform and heal. And so I pray you'd help us to hope in you, Jesus, and that you would be the rock on which we stand. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we are approaching the halfway point in a book uh, of Ecclesiastes that's exploring a lot of the pain of life under the sun. So when you think about what's happening in Israel or you think about things that are happening in Ukraine or you think about things that are happening around the world or in your own life or in our own city or in our own nation, like it's hard to face these things. There's a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of darkness in the world. And as I was preparing this sermon, I, all I could think this like phrase was emerging is are you afraid of the dark? This question. Are you afraid of the dark? And the reason why I ask that question, I think there's a propensity in our lives to varying degrees to try hard to not like enter into those dark places. But what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to do, he's going to walk us into, that, into these dark places and just say, I want you to pay attention to what's here. Um, if I ask that question, are you afraid of the dark? You might think, well, I used to be, or I was, or I wasn't. I remember as a kid, uh, I wasn't afraid of all darkness, but there was one particular darkness I was afraid of, which was my unfinished basement. I was afraid. Anybody scared of their unfinished basement as a kid? As a little kid, right? Little kid. Not a big kid. No way. As a little kid. Uh, as a little kid, I was afraid of my unfinished basement. Here's, here's the deal with my unfinished basement. My unfinished basement uh, was a, a dark place. You'd go down the stairs. There was a door. You'd go into it, but the light switch was on a post in the middle of the room, which is just like architecturally a cruel design. It's just like... It's a cruel design because you have to walk through the darkness to get to that light switch, right? And so I can remember as a kid times where I'd just kind of like gear up the courage to go down to the basement, finally go there, turn the light on, look around everywhere, make sure you're safe. And then when times comes to leave, you'd like make sure the door's open, flip the switch and like book it up the stairs and run up the stairs as fast as you can. And just like sit at the top of the stairs like, what's up everybody? I'm fine. I'm not scared. You know, and um, so I was scared. But here's the issue. I loved the basement because that's where our Nintendo was right? When we got the Nintendo, it was in the basement, right? And uh, I'm talking original Nintendo. We had the Atari. When we got the Nintendo, 
I wanted to be in the basement. And so in the basement, we had the Nintendo. That means we had Duck Hunt. We had Tecmo Bowl was in the basement, right? The kind of stadium games. Does anybody remember stadium games? You needed the power pad. All right, the power pad. Anybody remember the power pad? Okay, raise them high. Own it. Own it. These are, these are geriatric millennials. Uh, <laughs> here we are. Geriatric millennials. Okay, so... The power pad is like Dance Dance Revolution before Dance Dance Revolution. It was like this pad that had like, you know, had two people could be on it. It had these little places that you could stand on. And so there was a game. It was like, it's called Stadium Games. You could do 100-yard dash. You could do the long jump, the triple jump, hurdles. And you'd put your feet on the pad. You'd plug it into the Nintendo after you blow out the cartridge, plug it in. And, uh, and you would be able to run. Right? And you try to beat the turtle and they try to beat like the, the bear and the horse and the rabbit. And then like if you got good, like the, the next pro move was to put your toes in front of the pad and just do this. Because <laughs> then it like, could go faster. That's how you'd have to beat. But for the long jump, you'd have to do this with your hands. You just go. <laughs> and just. You just hang there for a while, and you're like, I'm cruising. You know, because nobody wants to jump that long. You can't jump. But if you use your hands, it can feel like you're in the air forever. So this is what I'd do in the basement. I'd go down. I'd build up the courage. I'd play, you know, this thing. I'm, like, winded right now from, from doing this right now. So I need to get a power pad back in my life, this aerobic activity. Um, so we'd come down. We'd go. We'd do the games. And then you'd, like, the time would come to go back upstairs, and it'd be that moment of, like, flip the switch, book it up the stairs and run and play it cool. But I was, I was afraid. I was afraid of the basement, but I, but I wanted to go in the basement. The reality is, it's not like darkness as such I was afraid of. It was like the hidden threats that might be in the corners, right? Like the threats that might be hidden in the dark corners is what I was afraid of. It's not just like darkness. It's what might be hidden in the darkness that might be out to get me, right? And, uh, and the reality is that all of us to varying degrees as we walk through life, they're like dark corners of life that we feel this sense that there might be something over there that might come out and get me. And what Ecclesiastes has been doing, and in this passage, he's going to do it in a really kind of sustained way, is he's, going to, he's essentially going to say, let's go explore those dark corners. Let's see what's over there. Like if you have a kid who's afraid that there's a monster in the closet or that there's a boogeyman under the bed, what you do as a parent is you go down and you like flip on the lights and you open the closet and you show them like, hey, here's the closet, here's the bed, it's okay. As a family, we, we haven't kind of taken the approach of like, there's nothing to be afraid of. There actually are things to be afraid of. What we've taken the approach is like, Jesus is better and he's with you, but also there's nothing in your closet and nothing under the bed. So here's where the analogy breaks down. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is going to take you into that dark corner, and there is a monster over there. There is like a boogeyman under the proverbial bed. There is a monster in the proverbial closet. There is a creepy clown in the proverbial sewer, right? Like, it's, there are creepy, painful things. And the word he's going to use as he walks through this is grievous evil. There are grievous evils in this world. And his contention is that by being honest with those realities, it leads you actually to a deeper, more true way of approaching life and ultimately to a deeper, more resilient faith in Christ and his kingdom. And so here's, here's what's going to happen. And I told you the first half is going to be kind of depressing. The first thing he's going to do is walk you into those corners and, and name some things that are there, that are actually there. You live in a world where there are grievous evils that either have or will, to varying degrees and in varying ways, affected your life. And naming them and getting honest about them is healthy. It actually leads you to not put your hope in things that can be threatened by 
the evils of this world, and it teaches you in time to actually put your hope in a foundation that is more stable and more sure. And so he's going to talk about those dark corners, and then he's going to bring us into kind of a, a way of approaching life in the midst of a world where those dark realities exist, and then ultimately that's going to push us towards Jesus. And so I want you to see it in the passage. We're going to start in verse 8. The first thing I want us to see is to be honest about the brokenness that is in the world. To some of you, this is natural. You already are. You feel it. You're overwhelmed by it. Other people, to varying degrees, are trying to avoid it, not think about it, or maybe naive towards it. And so he's going to walk us through what I'm going to call a handful of dark shadows. He's going to walk us into some dark shadows, some dark corners. We're not going to explore the fullness of these dark things or how we ought to engage with them. He's just going to take us on a little survey into the dark corners of that creepy basement and say, let's look around, and there are some monsters. There be dragons in these in these parts. And so look with me. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. He says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The first thing I want us to see, one of the dark corners of this world, is that you live in a world where there's broken and corrupt and unjust power structures. You live in a world where that is real. Okay, government and human power structures are normal and aren't inherently evil. In fact, government can be an incredible gift to bring organizing agency and social structures into a world. But you live in a world where those things that can be helpful and are necessary, are also affected by sin, and as such, are corrupted, broken, and oftentimes upholding injustices in different ways. That's real in the world. It's real in the world. It's real around the world. Essentially, what he kind of portrays in the passage is like whole systems that are built up that kind of like funnel up the kind of like benefits of a society towards the king. So the kings at the top and that kind of officials that are kind of layered in varying ways and varying degrees, kind of in this complex web of bureaucracy, it, it makes it such that the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the rights of different people groups are often overlooked with not much agency to do anything about it because you're kind of lobbying those petitions into the system where nobody's accountable and everybody's accountable and it's a complex web. And at the end of the day, the kind of cultivation of the fields and of the land seems to be to the benefit of the king, to the advantage of the king. So he's naming something, right? This isn't trying to create moral equivalency that every form of government and every nation is equally corrupt or broken, but it's naming something that's real, which is because we as human beings have sin in our lives and bring that sin into the way we do things, that the structures that we build are broken and corrupted and often create space where injustice is allowed to fester to the advantage of some and the disadvantage of others. He's not in this passage going to advocate for anything. He's not here going to tell you all the things you can do to actually speak up and speak out, though other places in the Bible will do that. What he's doing here is just saying, name it. It has always been like this. In every society, in every nation, in every culture, since the fall, Human beings, when we kind of gather together, we have the propensity to form structures that elevate those who have power at the expense of others because of our inherent sin. It's because of our inherent sin. That exists all over the place, including in our nation, but to different, differing degrees and in different places all around the world even today. 
Again, my point is not to create a moral equivalency where like everything is equally bad, but the reality that corruption, injustice, brokenness exists in human structures, he's just naming it. He says, don't be amazed at the matter. Don't be shocked. You live in a world where that's real. So he's walking us into this dark corner and saying, when you see Hamas and when you see Israel, grieve, lament, be devastated. But also these, these things, as devastating and grievous as they are, as evil as they are, have existed in this world perennially for millennia. Read history. Read your Bible. Pay attention to the world right now. Again, it's not saying it's no big deal. It's a grievous evil. You look at our own political system and you have the sense like if I got this candidate into office or if we got this candidate into local office or if we got our Congress to figure out what they're doing, like then it would all be better. It's, it's not gonna all be better. If you put your hope in human governmental structures, it will not be all better because human govern, governmental structures are upheld by broken people and so we perpetuate brokenness. Well, maybe if we revolted and we put the people on the bottom on the top, then it'll be better. It's like, no, it's like that's history. It's like this is the way it's happened. Again, I'm not trying to like make some political claim or some claim about the way the government ought to be. He's naming that human power structures have a corruption, a brokenness, and an injustice that's kind of been there. Don't be shocked when you see it. That's life in the world. You live in a world where that's real. That's real. It's always been real, and it's still real and it'll be real next year. Your worldview has to now kind of like come to terms with that. Come to terms. It's the first thing he looks at. That's a dark shadow. Again, so much could be said, super complex issue, but I'm moving past it because so does he. Verse 10 says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This also is vanity. The second thing that he's taking us into, this other dark shadow, is this endless rat race of life. This endless rat race. So he's like taking us over here. Hey, let's look over here. Like broken, unjust, corrupt governmental structures and people are suffering under that. That's real. Let's come over here. Like pursuit of wealth and money. Let's walk into that dark corner. How's that working out for humanity? People are hurting and they're just like on the rat race and they're getting increasingly exhausted and they're feeling some sense of dissatisfaction and pain and depression and anxiety and numbness and disillusionment and growing depression and a growing sense of just maybe this isn't working out and that's crushing people. That's real. And, and we live in a world where that's happening to us and all around us. That's a dark corner that money and wealth and possessions don't satisfy. They just put you, if you're going to go that route, on the endless rat race. It's another dark corner. So he takes us to another one right here, starting in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase, those, uh, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Saying like, when you have some degree of success and you scale up your life and you have increased responsibility at work and increased wealth and your family is growing and then also your burdens grow. Your burdens grow. This is like what people in their 20s are like confronted with. You know, the, the phrase these days is like adulting. Like, oh my gosh, like life has a lot of responsibilities. Like it kind of feels like I wake up in the morning, I get kids ready, get life ready, get all the things ready to go. I rush out to work. I work all day. I come home. I help the kids with homework. I kind of get food ready and I do the dishes and then we're getting kids down and then we're kind of paying the bills and taking out the trash and kind of working on this financial thing and working on this budget thing. And then I go to bed and I wake up and I do it again. Like that's life. Like as you've grown in responsibility, it's like, yes, it's real. 
People feel that. And, and then they hit like a midlife crisis. They're like, I built a life, life is hard and kind of mundane, and my responsibilities kind of occupy my waking hours, and then I go to sleep. And uh, is this really life? And it's like, yes. You live in a world where that's real. It's a dark corner. We don't like to go in the dark corner, and so we find ways to kind of avoid thinking about that stuff or numb ourselves to the, the anxiety or the depression or the disillusionment we feel, but it's real. The, second, the next thing he says in verse 12 is this. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but a full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He's saying those who are giving their lives to something of meaning and value and purpose and giving their lives in these ways can actually rest well. But for those that are just kind of like gorging ourselves on the indulgences of life and just like feeling the emptiness of like, I'm just like, I'm just like pursuing comforts and pleasures and comforts and pleasures, so much so that I don't even want to go to sleep at night. What I need to do instead is like watch more and more episodes or read more and more or do more and more until I like finally fall asleep because the silence of the bed is so overwhelming to me because I feel so empty in a life that's so overflowing with comfort and pleasure that it's depressing and I cannot face that dark reality. And so I'm just going to like stay up as late as I can and at 2 a.m. finally collapse with utter exhaustion and go to sleep versus actually giving your life to something that, that feels like, man, it's taking something of you and you're offering it sacrificially for the good of the world. It's naming it. It's naming it. Again, that's stuff that's relevant for us. I know it's relevant for us. I know that it's relevant for us. We are surrounded by comforts and pleasures and it's easy just to kind of like indulge and indulge and indulge and just that leads to an emptiness that's hard to face and it leads to a restlessness that you take with you into your sleeping hours. Then verse 13 takes us on another one. You're like, this is depressing, right? We're like halfway through the depressing part, okay? Uh, so hang with me. You're like, or fill out your park kids needs you card, right? Um, if you're like, this is too much, fill out the card. Um, verse 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, like another grievous evil, another dark corner, like I'm taking you to the corners of the basement to show you there are monsters in there. Here's another one. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Like the hoarding of wealth led to pain. Not towards like increasing joy, but to pain, the hoarding of things, to kind of keep accumulating and accumulating and hoarding for yourself and trying to kind of protect your little kingdom that you've built and all the treasures and you've got your kind of storehouses of all your treasures and your experiences and your relationships and your comforts and your, and your possessions and your net worth and your house and you've got it and you're like, oh, okay, I've got it. And it's like, that actually doesn't, it's not healthy as a human to like hoard, 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 hoard and to approach life with that kind of like insatiable greed for more. It's not healthy and it's hurtful. In fact, what happens in this passage is also unstable. Look what happens in verse 14. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Like you built it, you spent all your energy building and then something happened outside of your control and it fell apart, it fell apart. You live in a world where things outside of your control and mistakes you make and risks you take can devastate the kingdom you're trying to build. Like, don't tell me that I'm starting a business. I'm just, I'm, it's the dark corner that you're afraid of, right? I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying it's there. You live in a world where this stuff happens. This stuff happens. And then inevitably, that final dark corner that will eventually overtake us, death itself, is spoken of. Verse 15. As he came, this person, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 
This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. He's saying we toil, we struggle, we get up, we do the stuff, we, we do our responsibilities, we, we make our income, we, we take care of the people around us, you live, you have the experiences, you build your life, and then in the end, naked as you came, so you go back into the grave vulnerable with nothing you can take with you. Again, I, t- I told you it was going to be depressing, like I gave you the heads up. It is, it's dark, right? So he's naming Here are the corners. You live in a world where there's a dark corner over there, there's a dark corner over there, there's a dark corner over there, a dark corner over there, a dark corner over there, and there are real threats. And those threats have affected you to varying degrees, to varying degrees and in varying ways. One of those threats, death itself, is inevitable. It's coming. And you need to learn to operate in a world where that's real. That's real. So we all have ways we kind of like accommodate and respond to that. We can live naive about it, just kind of skipping through life, trying to ignore that stuff and just like avoid it and kind of stay in this sort of Pollyannish, like happy optimism, everything's good, everything's awesome, kind of Lego man style, like everything's awesome, you know, everything's okay and my life's good. And and if your life is good right now, praise God. Praise God. Rejoice in that. Thank him for it. To imagine that life will always be is a foolish thing to imagine. It's a foolish thing to imagine. So the next thing we do for some of us is we go into this kind of anxiety mode. Like, oh no, life's awesome right now, but I'm afraid it's not going to be, and so I need to like protect all the awesomeness and make sure all the awesomeness, and I kind of feel anxious to protect my relationships and anxious to protect my finances and anxious to protect my experiences and anxious to protect my freedom and anxious to, and I, and I can't take any risks. I can't really live in a world that's actually complex with beauty and brokenness because I'm so anxious to protect my little snow globe bubble of like bliss and euphoria and utopia that I just want to protect it. Now I'm like anxious and I'm, so I'm spinning my wheels anxiously kind of like like afraid, just nervous and frenetic to keep everything happy and good as if, that's, as if that's ultimately possible. And I'm telling you, that's exhausting and it's not ultimately a winning battle. It's, not, it's just going to exhaust you. It's going to exhaust you. So the, the, so the next one then is like, okay, so then where's the threat going to come from? And it's to live with fear. I bet it's going to be that. I bet this is going to go poorly. It's the kind of like, when is the other shoe going to drop kind of way? Life's been kind of good for a while. And I know God doesn't want our life to be good. And so I bet the other shoe's about to drop. And you kind of live with this sense like God's out to get me and some, and it's just terrified. And all your attention is on those potential threats. And you live with perpetual fear of what's going to happen. Or to varying degrees, those threats have become a reality. You face the job loss, the diagnosis, the loss, the relational breakdown, the pain, you're facing the depression, the anxiety, shame that you're wrestling with. You feel empty and dark. And, and right now, it's not so much fear. It's just deep, dark depression, a despair that makes it almost impossible to see anything but the darkness. All you see is darkness, that the joys and the delights and the gifts of life are beyond your scope right now because everything is so overwhelmingly dark in your, from your vantage point. These are ways that that we're kind of trying to cope with the realities of the brokenness in our world. And the reality is we have to learn how to be honest about it. It is the path forward. Here's a quote from uh, M. Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Traveled. He said this, life is difficult. This is a great truth. It's one of the greatest truths. 
It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Now, he's not going to say that pain is inconsequential, that there aren't grievous evils or devastating realities. What he's saying is the anxiety and the difficulty of trying to like live a life where we're just denying reality and de- denying the reality of difficulty is like exacerbating the problem. It's a psychological problem on top of the normal problems. You're compounding the issue. This world is full of grievous evils. That makes life hard. It does. Hard things, grievous things, things to weep about, things to lament. There's pain. What makes that pain compounded is when we expect and are shocked about that reality and expect that life shouldn't be like that. That impulse that life shouldn't be like that is from God because in some true sense, it's not what we were designed for. But we need to learn and let the dark shadows of life teach us something about reality. You live in a world, in the the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, that is under the sun. It is east of Eden. And in this world, we live in a world that because of humanity's rebellion against our maker, it is a world that is full of corruption and pain and death. That's real. And so when you feel the corruption and the pain and death, and to name it is to name reality. And it actually leads us into a deeper ability to appreciate the goodness, appreciate those gifts, appreciate those mercies as evidence of God's faithfulness that he's not just left us into the misery. He's continued to allow his mercy to kind of shine on the just and on the unjust. And ultimately, it teaches us that we need a savior. We need a God who would look on us with compassion and move towards us to redeem and restore. It's like we have this basic sense that life ought to be good, and when something bad happens, God did that to me. Versus because of our rebellion and because of humanity's sin and our separation from our maker, we have introduced into this world something called a curse. And that curse affects our bodies, it affects our relationship, it affects creation itself, And that's the world. And just the preacher of Ecclesiastes is just saying, just name it. Name it. It doesn't leave you in the name it, but the beginning is to name it. To name it. And to live. Let your worldview kind of expand a little. This is real. This is the world we live in. There are monsters in the closet. What do we do now? And he gives a little path forward. He gives us a taste, and Jesus takes us home. Here's a taste. Beginning in verse 18, he says this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. So there's evil. He's going to frame out this kind of good and evil thing. There's evil. What I've seen to be good and fitting. And and the the phrase there is like good and beautiful. It's an interesting phrase. What I've seen to be good, what I've seen to be beautiful, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God, God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So the second thing we're seeing is is to embrace and enjoy your beautiful and broken life as a gift from God. This is your life. It's today. This is your life. Your life doesn't begin when you graduate from college or when you 
when you get in that finally in that relationship or you land that job or you make it to that next stage in your life, like often we're like spinning our wheels like busy to try to like build a life that's like now I'm finally living. You're living today. This is your life. With the joys and the gifts around you and the trials and the pains that affect you, this is your life. And what the preacher says, it's a gift. It's a gift. And if you can learn to enjoy what God has given you with all the complex web of beauty and brokenness, joys and sorrows, and say, this is my life. Given humanity's rebellion and the fact that this world is full of sin and corruption and death and pain, I I can sit in this life and say, this is the life God has given me. And how do I learn to appreciate those things, those evidences of his mercy and his grace, that friendship, that, that note, that food, that drink? And how do I even learn to appreciate the toil? How do I learn to appreciate the things God's given me and steward them with wisdom and love for the good of others? How do I take life and say, instead of falling into like, oh no, there's shadows, life is awful, what does it look like to say there's shadows and there's light, there's brokenness and there's beauty? And to live it and say, thank God for this life. Thank God for this life. Uh, a practice that's helped me begin to taste this as a, for our family is just Sabbath, to weekly take time to Sabbath and just thank God on Sabbath. Stop the toiling, stop the stress, push away those things and say, this is, this is our life. The, the joys and the sorrows, the gifts and the losses, the beauty and the pain, this is our life. It's a gift and we're gonna enjoy that. We're gonna thank God for it. And what begins to happen when you create space in your life to to honor and to thank God and to enjoy the things he has given, you begin to see his goodness all around you in so many different ways. The world's not inherently and entirely dark. There's evidence of God's mercy and goodness. My kind of like morning prayer is this, and it's been something because it's just something I can stand on. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. That's like something I can stand on every day. His steadfast love never ceases. Mercies never come to an end. Every morning, his mercy towards me and towards this world is new and fresh, and his faithfulness will never come to an end. I can stand on that, and I can begin to taste and see evidences of his faithfulness and mercy and his love around me. Around me. And when you learn to live like that, it helps you have a healthy life here and now. But it doesn't like solve the fundamental problem. And so he even says that at the beginning of chapter six. Like, Sure, he gives gifts and you can enjoy. If you start putting your hope too much in material gifts and possessions, you might find you're not even able to, en- to enjoy that. Chapter six, verse one and two just talks about a person who's like, they got all the gifts, everything they ever wanted, but they have no power to enjoy it. And just remarking again, we don't spend time all the way through chapter six talking about it, but the, he's essentially wrapping up the first half of his argument that all of life is like a vapor. It's uncontrollable, times it feels absurd, feels fleeting, feels like beyond our ability to understand and grasp, and we're like chasing after the wind. And he's just saying, when you start to embrace that, when all those dark corners of reality, when they start affecting you, there are people that are so affected by those dark realities that it would bring you, and he uses a really dark and devastating analogy. It, it brings you to a point you, where you think like, is there even a point in living? Like, if life is that hard, and it's not that hard, equally hard for every person, there are such ranges of the devastation that life can bring. But there are people that are so overwhelmed by the darkness that that it's a reasonable thought. It's hard to say. Give me a moment. It's a reasonable thought to say, then what's the point? And that's where he goes. Like, what's the point? What are we supposed to do in a world that's full of these dark things and then we die? It's like life is hard and then you die. 
So would have it been better to never have been born? And that's not where he goes. It's not where he goes, and it's really important to say that. He takes you into this dark hole, a really deep pit, where what you'd think would be down there is utter despair. What you'd think that would be down there is a sense of like hopelessness, like this is the road to nihilism, this is the road to meaninglessness, what's the point of anything? That's not where he goes. Ultimately, this whole book is laying a foundation for us to name a reality, that a world apart from the redeeming and saving love of our creator is a broken place. But what we know and what the author knew is that there was a day when God was going to intervene. He's going to intervene. He's going to be bringing some way to make sense of this. And that's what Jesus does. It's the third point and the last point I want us to see is what does it look like to let both the beauty and the brokenness drive you to Jesus? My goal and the goal of Ecclesiastes is not to lead you into nihilism. It's not to lead you into despair. But it's to get you to look at those painful places so we stop trying to build our life and the things we can accumulate, acquire, and achieve under the sun. It is a losing battle that will lead to despair. And if you can name that, then you have to start wondering, is there anything God has done or will do? And there is. God looked at us in that space as we're living in the grievous evils and in this world full of all these dark shadows, and he sent his son into the world with compassion He's not oblivious, he's not distant, he's not up there like some puppeteer laughing. He's moved into the world with vulnerability and intimacy and nearness. He suffered like we suffer. He tasted betrayal, injustice, poverty, calamity. He was unjustly tried and and condemned to death. He was wrongfully imprisoned and he was wrongfully unjustly crucified on a tree and he knows pain, he knows oppression, he knows loss, he knows devastation. He knows what it's like to to cry out to God and to not feel the answer of God. He knows that, and he walked into that all as an expression of the love of God to redeem us from the root cause of all of those grievous evils, our own rebellion against God, that Jesus took in his body on the tree the wrath of God because of our sin to forgive us and atone for us and to wash us and to cleanse us and give us a path through which we can be reconciled to our maker and can begin even now to taste his nearness and his love and his grace, even now to to, to experience his his compassion towards us and his presence with us, that he can strengthen us for the trials, he can guide us through the complexities, he can weep with us in the losses, he can comfort us in the grief. He is himself a man of sorrows, very acquainted with grief. But he also gives us hope through his resurrection on the third day that he has the power to heal the world. He has the power to heal the world. Who else has the power to do it? Does our government? Does some new leader from some place, are they going to emerge and heal the world? Is somebody going to fix all the brokenness that's in me and in you? Can somebody do that? Can we just try harder and fix it ourselves? Millennia of history has said no. You live under the sun in a world that is dominated by and permeated with grievous evil and incredible gifts. And the gifts are evidence of a God who made us and who is pointing us towards a future. And we can receive the gifts as a foretaste of where the world's headed and receive even the pain and the brokenness as things that teach us to not hope in life under the sun, to build our hope on Jesus, to participate in his kingdom, to value him, center our lives on him and participate in what he's doing to heal the world. Now you can live with meaning and purpose and hope and love and joy even in the midst of the pains of life. Uh, A quote that I love, and I end with this, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
uh, that I think is stunning, and it's just become something, just a treasure. He says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I love that image. The storms are rough sometimes. And when those storms throw you against Jesus and say, I, I was building my life in shakable things, and those shakable things are shaking, and so I'm gonna, I want to be cast against the rock of ages and say, I need to build my life on you. You are unshakable. You're a fortress and a refuge. Even when the world around me is crumbling, I can stand on you and find safety and joy and hope even when everything's falling apart. That builds a kind of resilience, and the world needs resilient disciples of Jesus. Our city, your workplace, and your neighborhood needs resilient disciples of Jesus, and we'll get there by getting honest about the brokenness, by learning to enjoy and embrace all that life is, and letting all the beauty and the pain drive us to deeper, more resilient, more mature faith in Christ. And when we do that, we get to participate in what he's doing to bring restoration and healing into the world. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we come right now and we ask that you would truly deepen our roots. You would deepen our roots, the roots of our faith, that you'd help us to be rooted and grounded in your love, and that you would build us as a community into resilient disciples, that we wouldn't be like little saplings that the wind is knocking over. We wouldn't be like little shrubs with shallow root system that when the, when the heat of trials come, we're scorched up. But we'd be deeply, deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus and your faithfulness and your steadfast love so that when the winds come, when the rains come, when the storms come, our faith can stand and grow and mature and we can even create space for others to love and care for others. And so would you build in us resilient faith that we would not hope in the things under the sun. We put our hope in you. Help us to learn to kiss the waves that throw us against you, Jesus, the rock of ages. And it's in your name we pray, amen. I wanna go ahead and invite the communion servers to make their way forward. Um, There are complexities and pains that each of you face that, that just like pastorally I feel like aware of levels of devastation that some of you have tasted and that you experience and feel. And nothing about what we're saying today and talking about today in Ecclesiastes is intended to make light of any of that. The pains you experience are real. To grieve those pains, to feel, to feel the reality of it, to wrestle with it, to struggle through it, it's normal. This is human life. We're all wrestling and struggling to varying degrees and in varying ways. Uh, to weep over it is healthy. Jesus weeps with those who weep. To feel perplexed and disillusioned is normal. The invitation today is to lean in to Jesus. What we celebrate here at the culmination of our gathering every week is the demonstration of God's love for us in the midst of a world full of grievous evil. That as human beings, we corporately and individually brought evil into the world. We continue to participate in it. And instead of God pushing us out to heal the world, he came into it. And he offered his life as an expression of love, and as an opportunity for forgiveness and cleansing and hope and transformation. 
And so when we celebrate communion, it's a time for us to remember who Jesus is and what he did to move into this place, to love us and meet us right here and right now. The broken body and the shed blood represented in the loaf and in the cup. This, this is what the world needs. The world needs a God who's moved into this place to suffer on our behalf and to bring hope that he can restore and redeem. And that's what we celebrate week in and week out. And so we turn to Jesus in the pain. We turn to Jesus in the perplexity. We turn to Jesus in the doubt. We turn to Jesus in our frustrations and our angers. We turn to Jesus in our weariness. And so this is for everybody who had turned to Jesus. Instead of running away from him and trying to sort it out on our own or escaping the pain on our own, we turn to Jesus. And this is Christianity. is to say, I've contributed to the brokenness in the world. We can't save ourselves. We need you. I'm trusting in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and his victorious resurrection. I'm going to put my hope there. And this is a way for us to continue to move into that week in and week out as a community. So for this all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian or you're still exploring the claims of Christianity, um, we want to encourage you to take this time and even pray and thank God, what are, you, what are you doing in my heart? What are you teaching me? What, what do you want me to see? If you're struggling to even know, is there even a God? Man, sounds weird, but ask him. God, I, I, I'm confused. I doubt. I don't know. Help me. Help me. To even move towards him with your doubt is a step of faith that I think is really beautiful and to watch God meet you in that space. This meal is for all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And we as a community have been reading a prayer to prepare for this meal week in and week out. So I want to invite you all to stand with me as we read this corporate prayer, reminding ourselves that our hope is in Jesus. Would you read this with me? Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways, even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.